thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. 28 minutes to 10 o'clock and this is your opportunity to uh, satisfy your curiosity about the world around you. We're taking your science-related questions. We're stripping any su- any subject down to its bare essentials. Uh, do join us on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Chris, how are you doing? Nice to chat to you again. Uh, morning, Reedy. Nice morning. to talk to you too. How, how's the cold? How's the weather now? Well, all of that snow that was here, that they told us if it all melted, it would cause floods and things. So go and build a snowman. Can you believe that? We were told, go and build snowmen. Oh, yes, I heard the risk that. Of flooding. Uh, well, well, that snow and those snowmen have gone. I, I did try. I built three. Um, there was still a flood, though. And now it's raining, so it's much warmer, probably about um, 10 degrees, 12 degrees, but um, th- th- lots of rain coming down now. So Which what, is better, what snow is now rain? The, the snow or the um, rain? Actually, I prefer the snow. I really do. Yeah. I, I don't mind it when it's cold. And snow has that interesting feature that it, you don't actually feel like it's wet. And because it's nice and white and reflective, even though the, there might be some clouds above you, everything looks much brighter because the, the snow is reflecting all the light, whereas when it's just cloudy and grey it's oh, a bit no. miserable really isn't it, it and is. everyone goes around looking and feeling gloomy so i actually quite like <laughs> snow because it reminds me of going skiing as well oh stunning all right i've got an email here from peter peter wants to know if i blow up a balloon to a si- certain size it bursts but if i use helium gas to blow up the same balloon i can blow it up bigger than if i use my own breath why is that I don't know why there should be a difference because the the thing that constrains your balloon is that rubber is a polymer and were you to zoom in on the rubber or the latex in the balloon you would see what resembles a tangled mass of spaghetti and that's the rubber polymer chains and they're all wound around each other and when you blow air into the balloon you are stretching those polymers and they all unwind or untangle and slide past each other until they're more stretched out. And the point at which, instead of unwinding, they actually begin to stress the bonds between the rubber, then the balloon will go bang. So it shouldn't actually matter what gas is in the balloon because the balloon stretch is going to be the same. You may take more or less mass of gas because helium is going to be lighter than air, but the net effect on the balloon, the actual stretch on the latex, is going to be the same. So I, I think it might be something to do with the way at which the helium, which is going to come from a cylinder, is going to inflate the balloon. It's probably going to inflate it gently, regularly and smoothly, compared with when you blow into the balloon, you're applying different pressure to the balloon because you're doing it in big puffs or bursts from your lungs. The helium may also be at a different temperature. So when you blow air out of your lungs, you're going to be putting warm, wet air into the balloon compared with the helium cylinder, which is going to put colder gas, which is also going to be very dry. And so there are some differences, but I would have thought the net effect is going to be that the, the balloon probably will go bang 
at roughly the same size in both cases. Also, as the helium balloon goes up in the air, because it will float, mm. in fact, it's going to rise until um, the balloon stops pushing air out of the way that weighs more than it does. And that means that as it goes up, the balloon will try to expand, so it's more likely to go bang if you put helium in it, but not at ground level. All right, Mark in Oakland. Hi. Hello, Reedy mm. and Chris. Why does the sun rise and set south of the east-west meridian in Joburg in summer? We are 400 kilometres south of the Tropic of Capricorn. Uh, so I'm not sure I understand the question, so just explain this a little bit more what you mean, Mark. Okay. We are 400 kilometres south of the southern tropic, and okay. therefore the sun should never get to us uh, more than... It should not be overhead south of the tropic, but it rises and sets south of us uh, in summer. The north walls are in bright sunlight until 10 o'clock in, in midsummer, and the... the sorry, the, the, the wall's getting that, but the north-facing walls don't get sun until the same time. So a south-facing wall gets the sun early and late. They should never get the sun at this, this uh, mm. latitude. Okay. I, I think what I'm going to do is take a rain check or even a sun <laughs> check on this because I need to draw this. I don't want to say something and mess it up. Okay. I need to think about this carefully. So if it's okay with you, yes. uh, I will take this away and think about it and draw it out for myself so I can make sure I give you the right answer and I will come back with this. Or uh, usually there are lots of enterprising, clever people who've already thought about these problems <laughs> listening to this. So if anyone would like to get in touch, Reader will tell you how I'm sure in a second, then please uh, help Mark out. Otherwise I will go and draw this out and come back next week, Mark, if that's okay. Right. Sorry, I, d I don't want to get this wrong. I appreciate the, okay. the antics for a proper answer because I cannot figure it out. So uh, thank okay, thank you very much, Mark. Let's see if anyone else can help us out or otherwise we are going to, to wait until next week. Our email address is uh, reedy at 702.co.za. That's reedy at 702.co.za or reedy at capetalk.co.za. Keith in Foys. Good morning. Hi. Mm. A question. How does an electric toothbrush get charged and yet remain waterproof. There seems to be no electrical contact between the charger and the electric mm. and the toothbrush. Hi, Keith. Well, in the old days, of course, there was. Um, you had to plug them in rather like your shaver. But in these days of modern technology, then what you have is a battery inside the plastic case of the toothbrush. And at the base of the plastic case of the toothbrush is a copper coil. And so when you bring the toothbrush close to the base it stands on, there is an equivalent coil in there. And current is passed from the mains in an alternating current through the coil in the base. And this creates a changing magnetic field, because if you have a changing current, like an alternating current, then you'll get a changing magnetic field. And the wire in the toothbrush is seeing a changing magnetic field. And if you expose a conductor to a changing magnetic field, then you will cause a current to flow in that secondary conductor. So the toothbrush effectively is, is a transformer, but with a bigger gap between it and the base station. And that second coil picks up the current and it's then rectified to turn it into DC and smoothed out, and then it's fed into your battery at the correct voltage to charge the battery up. Thank you very much, Keith. And Denise in Table View, hi. Hi. Um, I'd like to ask the naked scientist a question about um, these environmental-friendly compact fluorescent light bulbs that we're using. Mm -hmm. um, they're supposed to be environmental-friendly, but don't they, if they break, don't they release um, mercury vapour? 
into the environment. Y yes, you're right, they do. Uh, so let me just explain this. Um, although we call them compact fluorescents, th they, they are relatively compact, but they are basically just a strip light in the same way that you have in the ceiling these very long tubular lights called fluorescent lights. They work by having a filament at each end and you inject electricity, which effectively ionises some gas. In other words, you get a big current flowing along inside the light and this current hits atoms of mercury which are in there and it knocks the electrons off the mercury making them ionize and when the electrons go back onto the mercury and fall back down to their original starting state they give out the extra energy that was put into them and they give it out as ultraviolet light and that ultraviolet then hits the coating called the phosphor which is on the inside of the glass and the phosphor gives out a range of different colored lights which when we see them together look white. So that's how strip light works and a compact fluorescent is merely a small version of a big strip light. So it, it, although people tend to obsess about the mercury in, in these compact fluorescents, they're no different than the mercury that you'll find in big other strip lights and we've been comfortable with using those for a really long time. They are better for the environment because they put out more usable light compared with uh, an incandescent bulb which works a very different way that works by using the electricity to heat a filament you have a thin piece of tungsten inside which glows roughly 2000 degrees c in an operating light bulb but the vast majority of the energy is being given out as heat which is infrared radiation that you can't see so maybe 80 percent of the energy coming out of that light bulb is infrared light that's invisible so you're basically wasting the vast majority of, of your money whereas with a compact fluorescent the efficiency especially with the, the modern ones can be much much higher you know an mm. order of magnitude better and the led lights which don't have mercury are going to be the next generation and they're brilliant and they may be 80 percent efficient so that's the direction it's going so i think this is going to be a transient problem but it's certainly not a new problem we've been living with this mercury which is there at tiny amounts let's remember it's only there at tiny amounts we've had this for a really long time thank you denise thank, thank you, you very much and glad you are doing the responsible thing thank you let's go to is it martin martin Nudmead. hi hi there <coughs> how are you doing fine thank you yep just very quickly uh, i went to a dinner party the other night and uh, i saw from babies to teenagers to adults when they get tired they rub their eyes i want to know why that happens because <laughs> their eyes are tired <laughs> <laughs> what did you have for dinner martin Big fat steak. Oh, well, that's Big good. Big fat steak, okay. Thomas would be a friend of yours. He approves. Thomas would be around there. He approves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the reason we, we rub our eyes, I, I think there's probably a, a range of different reasons, but I know that when I get very tired, my eyes feel very tired and they get sort of gritty. Uh, most people say you, you have this gritty, sore sensation, and I think probably that's what the kids are doing, that, that you get local irritation because your eyes begin to get tired. They get tired because the tear film that you produce drops. In other words, your eyes lubricate themselves with tears. When you get tired and start to drop off to sleep, the amount of tear fluid that you produce drops off. You don't need to make lots of tears in the night because your eyes are closed, and that means you're not losing the fluid from the front of your eye. So the amount of tear fluid you need is lower, so the body turns down the tear supply. And this means that when you're falling asleep or getting really tired, if the amount of tear fluid has dropped off, 
but you are still forcing yourself to stay awake. Your eye is drier than makes it feel comfortable, and it feels gritty, and that's why you rub it. And I suspect that the, the kiddies, because their brain is saying, OK, you should be asleep now, it's turning down the tear production, and their eyes are feeling a little bit dry, and they start to rub them. Thank you, Martin. Thank you. Um, is it Richard? Richard in Randburg. Hi. I'm all right, reading high, yes. Fine, thank you, Richard, yeah. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to find out from the, the gentleman there, what happened when your body started rejecting television screen and rejecting computer screen? Even the light rejects the light as well, no matter how far is the light, as long as it gets through to you at night. What and happens then, what, when you say it rejected? It rejected what actually happens to the you? The skin burns like you are sitting next to a very hot fire. Oh, Chris? So I'm just trying to ex- understand exactly what's happening, Richard. So you're saying that your skin or some skin can get burned by exposure to a TV screen? Yes, even the fa- even my face, even my eyes, everything is just like I cannot. I've been, I've been out of TV screens from nineteen ninety. You've been out of what? Like, Sorry, you breaking? You've been television. Out of- yeah. Since from nineteen ninety, I didn't watch TV until today. And and you okay. had the same is reaction. Is there anything, when you look at your skin, yeah. Richard, is there anything visible on it after this happens? No, or is it just no. a sensation? It's a burning feeling. Yeah, burning feeling. I went to doctors, they checked, they did everything. They can't find out what is it exactly. But I know that when I'm on the front of a screen or anywhere where there's a radiation, and then I'm out. Oh, dear. Well, I, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm as baffled as those doctors as to why you should have this sensation because it doesn't sound like there's physical damage happening to your skin because you can't see anything obvious changing. So it, it sounds to me like there's more of a, a sensory thing going on here that there, there's some either a psychological thing or a physical sensory thing that there's something about mm-hmm. you that when you're exposed to a certain situation you experience these strange sensations beyond that i'm really sorry without being able to look at you i couldn't say sorry richard sorry dear sorry let's take a break um dan gary i see your calls we'll come to you in a moment i have a an email an sms from sheffield in the uk somebody wants to know please ask the naked scientist about the experiment to make petrol from air know anything about that chris no (laughs) i haven't come across this Mm. if they can give me a reference for where they saw this published uh, that would be really useful, and I'll look into it for them. Okay, thank you very much. Let's go to um, uh, Dan. You've got an answer for that uh, the, the sun and uh, sun going down south of east uh, a question. Yes, really. I think I understand the gentleman's question. He was asking, you know, how come can he get the sun shining on these walls of his house that are sort of south of the east-west line, when in point of fact the sun never gets directly overhead because Joburg is south of the tropics. And, of course, the answer is that, and he's quite right, of course, the sun in Joburg never will get directly overhead. It can't do that. But, in fact, it will rise uh, south of that east-west line and likewise set south of that east-west line. So, really, what it does is it does a longer arc, but it's a sort of a, a low, flat arc, um, if you take if you take an extreme case, if you went down, say, in the summer solstice down to the Antarctic, the sun, in fact, of course, never sets, but it does a full 360 around the clock. It just goes slightly lower this side and slightly higher that side. So that's an extreme where, in fact, the sun does a complete circle. So he's quite right. It'll never get to directly overhead in Joburg, 
but it will rise in summer after the east-west rise. Mm-hmm. I had a suggestion on Twitter, at uh, Naked Scientist, from Mags Nadu, who said we'll also take into account that the Earth is tilted at 23.5 degrees, and so in summertime, the um, Earth is going to be tilted in a different attitude than in wintertime. And so you will actually see the sun passing over those north walls, even though you are in the position on the Earth's surface that you are. Mm-hmm. Okay. Dan, thank you very much. Hey, thank you very much for calling. Let's go to, uh, is it Gary? Gary in Germiston. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Mm. I, I want to see if they could answer a question for me. When we were young, we used to drink like lots of milk. And um, parents used to drink lots of milk. Everybody used to drink lots of milk. It was a big health thing. And that, and that thing. Now when we drink lots of milk, everybody's lactose intolerant. How come? What has changed in the milk? Hello, Gary. Uh, The answer is everyone, if they're lactose intolerant when they're older, they were probably lactose intolerant when they were younger. Lactose intolerance is because of the low level or absence of an enzyme in your digestive juices called lactase, which breaks down lactose, which is the dominant sugar, which is in milk. And it's interesting because geographically, this was this sort of tendency to be lactose intolerance was something that our early ancestors, when they came out of Africa, had, and they initially peopled Europe, and the people who were the early settlers in Europe had lactose intolerance, and then when agriculture came along, maybe ten thousand years ago, and people began to build farms and animal husbandry began to kick in, there was a strong advantage for people that had this gene, which could break down lactose and give them effectively more energy and fewer gut problems through actually consuming milk. And as a result, there was a very big increase in the presence and prevalence of that gene in European populations who were farming things from about 10,000 years ago. So in some places in the world, you still see uh, people who have a low level of that gene, and that largely depends on their ancestry. And I think we've just become much better at picking this sort of thing up now. Also, when a a baby is born, it has an an increased expression of these genes compared with, I think, when it gets older. I need to check that fact, so don't quote me on that, but I think that may also play a role. So when you're little, you're better at digesting milk proteins than when you're older, um, which may also make a difference for some people. I think another key thing to bear in mind is what we call the microflora. We're beginning to appreciate now how important the bacteria that live in our guts are in terms of their contribution to what we eat and drink and how much energy we get out of it. And when you eat, your bacteria in your guts eat. And what you eat affects what bacteria are there. And certain diets select for certain populations of microorganisms. And so people who get some of these um, things like uh, irritable bowel and what we call dysbiosis, they get an upset tummy quite regularly, it could be because the spectrum of bugs in their gut has been influenced by things they're eating, things that are wrong with them. And as a result, they're not so good at breaking down some foods over others. And when they eat those foods, they create symptoms. Thank you very much, Gary. And then we've got Antoinette. Antoinette in Mowbray. Hi. Hi, I want to ask the naked scientist. I have a book from 1988, the Reader's Digest Book of Facts. It says man may be able to control earthquakes with water pumped into ground in unstable areas, which could cause them, by lubricating the rocks beneath, allowing them to slip more freely past each other. Geologists are working on plans to release tension in unstable zones. Has this come about because this book is 1988? 
or are the geologists not doing that? What is going on with the earthquakes? And okay. with the earthquakes? Hello, Antoinette. Well, it's interesting because people are worried with the question of fracking, whether or not this may cause seismic instability. And there was a little bit of fracking going on in the northwest of England. And there was a very nearby earthquake. And there was, for a while, a moratorium on doing any more fracking while they investigated. It's perfectly possible that you could, by putting certain rock formations under pressure cause them to unload so when you have an earthquake zone what is happening is that one plate one bit of the earth's surface is trying to move in one direction another plate is trying to move in another direction and they are storing energy rather like you stretching an elastic band and something is holding them together so the energy is not unleashed and when an earthquake happens all that's occurred is that whatever was stopping the two surfaces suddenly moving and releasing all that stored energy is that something gives and it may be that you have a lot of water that's lubricated the plate or something like that. On the scale of fracking, it might be possible to do this on a small scale in a small area and make something happen. But most major earthquake zones are huge. The amounts of energy being stored are huge, and the contact area between those plates are huge. And so trying to use water to make them go, if you like, is unlikely i think and uh, it's more likely that we won't be able to stop the earth doing what it's been doing for billions of years but what we will become much better at doing in the future to control earthquakes is actually being better at mitigating the effects of an earthquake because there's the old saying earthquakes don't kill people Mm. buildings do and being better at predicting where earthquakes are going to happen when they're going to happen and giving people warnings and making buildings better engineered which we're pretty good at doing these days the buildings they're knocking up around the world these days uh, like in japan i mean you look at what happened in japan a very big earthquake and then the tsunami all those nuclear power stations uh, in fukushima were absolutely untouched by the the actual earthquake it was the tsunami that they hadn't taken into account that actually was the problem. So we're pretty good at making buildings these days. So it's, it's more mitigation of the effects of earthquakes rather than right. trying to stop them or trigger them. Okay, Antoinette, very interesting. Thanks for sharing that with us. I have an SMS here. It says the petrol from air uh, story was on Discovery Channel. It's a project done in Dallas. That's from Domingos. Okay, uh, Chris, I'm sure we'll, we'll have a look at this and get more details uh, for next week. I shall see what I can do for you. Thank you very much. We trust you. Have a lovely weekend, Chris. We'll chat to you next Thank week. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Have a nice weekend. Bye-bye. 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 And don't forget, all our conversations with The Naked Scientist are available as podcasts. Download them from our website. And you can also find out more about The Naked Scientist. You can visit their website at www.thenakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.